How many of you have a person in your life who no matter what they hear other people are going through, have a better story than yours? (laughs) You can almost predict the first words out of their mouth, you think that was rough. How many of you know people like that? I have a gift for you today to deal with those people. It's the story of Job, the best man, arguably, to ever be described in Scripture so that no one can say, I deserve more than him, who experienced the most horrendous tragedies known in Scripture so that no one can say, I got it worse than him. The beauty of the book of Job is that there isn't a person in this room that can say, I'm better, or I have it worse. And in that, this book gives us a very safe place for all of us to be on level ground and to explore the big question that has been troubling people since there were people. And that's the question, why do we suffer? Perhaps you are in the middle of a set of circumstances that have gotten so bad, despair is the norm. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with that right now. Maybe when you heard we're talking about Job, you thought, Job, who wants to study Job? My life is miserable enough. Or maybe you've been through a dark season and things are better now, but you know in your heart you're not past it. You're still struggling. Why, why did God put me through that? You still find yourself flashing back into that dark season and struggling with the injustice of it. Maybe you have a friend who is going through a hard time and you're trying to be the voice of comfort. You're trying to find some wisdom, some way to fix their desperation. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you're someone that has, in your mind, figured it all out. You know why there's suffering in the world, and all we really need to do is to ask you to get up and explain it to us today, and we'll all be fine. (laughs) Maybe you think you've figured it out. Well, welcome to an adventure of discovery for all of us as we look at what is one of the most beautifully written stories of all time, let alone of Scripture. The book of Job is considered to be one of the great works of literature. And it's a shame that as Christians, most of us have never read it, let alone studied it. Because we feel that to enter into this book is to experience in a fresh way our own misery, our own tragedy, or or to keep us focusing on things that we'd just rather not focus on. And we miss the fact that actually the book of Job is life-giving. It's written with hope. And so we're going to dig right in. Job chapter 1, just the first five verses to get us going today. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of fasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. I think the way we want to start this is to, first of all, separate out in our thinking the historic person of Job and the book of Job. There was a man named Job, and I think the first thing I want you to understand is he was just a man. He was like all of us. What we're going to see, and I think many of us, I certainly find it encouraging that Job will grumble. He will weep bitterly. Job will curse the day he was born. Talk about despair. Job will sin. But in the midst of all that, he never abandons God. Job's real like us. He's just a human being. He will suffer and struggle like all of us do when we face tragedy. And here's the thing. We all face tragedy. And what we see in Job is humanness with an unshakable faith. Job lived long before there was a nation of Israel. 1800 years BC, he was a Yahwistic sheik, contemporary of Abraham. Now, interestingly, the book was written around 700 BC. We know that because of the established Hebrew theology and doctrine written clearly by a Hebrew during the period of the nation. So this is an ancient story. This would be for the reader in its day a period piece, like BBC is famous for. My wife and I are addicted to BBC period series. Job was not a contemporary of anyone who was reading it, but he was a real man. He was a good man. He's described as blameless and upright. He was known for integrity and moral character. Now, blameless is a very different thing than sinless. Anyone who has come to faith in Christ is now before God blameless. But does that make you sinless? No. You see, Job's blamelessness was found in his standing with God, just like our blamelessness is found. But he wasn't just a good man. He's described as a greatest man, the most successful person in his part of the world, us, was to the east of Canaan, which would become the land of promise, the land of Israel. A large region, Job is the most successful, influential, and powerful person in that whole area. But he's not just the greatest man. He is a godly man. Like Abraham, Job functions as the priest of his family, but not just his family. Being nomadic, he functioned as the priest of the portable city that traveled with him. He worshiped God. That's what it means to fear God, to revere God. And he understood that in order to revere God, you needed to live 
a holy life. He shunned evil. We also know that Job recognized that we sin. He recognized the need for sacrifice, for forgiveness, and for redemption. And so in many ways, Job's faith was very much like ours today. And the reason why he was blameless was to no merit of his own, but because of his faithful worship in coming to God for forgiveness and for redemption. And the thing I want you to understand at the onset of this story that we're about to spend the next 12 to 14 weeks looking at, yeah. (laughs) And that reminds me of something. In your life groups, I guarantee the first time you sit together, some of you are going to want to jump right to the end. You're going to want to say, well, here's why I think people suffer. Here's what I think the Bible says. Please don't do that. The book of Job is designed not to jump to the answer, but to patiently remove all the wrong thinking and answers so that in the end we're left with the only solution that's possible. So stay in the question with us. The point is for us to journey with Job and to face some of our faulty thinking about suffering to deconstruct our notion of faith and of God and of life, all the assumptions that we have, and then find what we're left with. But the thing I want you to understand from what we learn about the man that we're going to be studying, the big idea is that all of us face tragedy in life. And the kind of person you are before tragedy strikes will determine two things. One, how you respond to that tragedy And two, who you are at the end of it. There's a reason why time is spent describing who Job was at the onset of this. Who you are before you face tragedy has a significant impact on how you respond to tragedy when it comes and who you are when you're done with it. There, there may be some of you in this room who are not equipped at all for what's coming ahead of you. <laughs> and when it comes, it's going to knock you off your feet and you're going to lose your faith. Who you are right now will determine what tragedy, which is inevitable, will produce in your life. Some of you will get bitter. Others of you will get better. Some of you will reject God. Others of you will run to God. And all of that is set up by the person you are at this very moment in the same way that that was true of Job. So that's Job the man. But now let's look at this book because understanding the nature of the book of Job is critical if we're going to interpret it and get the right message. Now, I want to remind you of one of the verses from 2 Timothy, and I'd like you to say this with me. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. You may more recognize the term who rightly divides the word of truth. How many of you know that expression? The Greek word there is an engineering term. 
It's using the analogy of how an engineer would make a, a measured cut. You know that statement, measure twice, cut once? It's that idea. So that when I cut into the Word of God, it's a clean cut. In other words, we don't come to Scripture lightly. The real way to look at Scripture is not to sit around and say, what does it mean to you? The real way to look at Scripture is to ask, what does it mean? God communicated. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, Paul says. The book of Job is God-breathed Scripture to us. And there was something God meant to communicate. We need to rightly divide the Word. And it's that person that God says, I'm not ashamed of. If it is the Word of God, and what that means is it's God's very living Word to us, the worst thing you could do is to say that it means something other than what it actually says. Think about that. Think about the fact that when you misuse Scripture, you're putting words in God's mouth. Can there be any greater deceit? And so when we come to this book, our job is to rightly divide it. And in order to do that, we need to, as Paul says, be diligent, or again in the King James, study to show yourself approved to God. And one of the things that's important to point out right at the onset is that the book of Job is a book of poetry. How many of you didn't know that? There are four sections to our Old Testament scripture. There are the books of Moses, or what we call the law, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's history, which is Joshua through Esther. We believe and trust that this is a faithful recording of the history of the people of God, because that's why it was written. But then there's wisdom, or poetry, or what the Hebrew people simply referred to as the writings. And then there's the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Job is part of wisdom literature, the common type of literature among ancient peoples. What makes the wisdom literature of Scripture different is that it is, first of all, inspired by God to communicate eternal truth to us. But secondly, the sages were writing it with a distinctly Hebrew worldview and with a scriptural theology, giving you godly wisdom the way life tends to go for those who seek God and live according to his wisdom. A good example, and I've used this before to talk about how we can abuse scripture, is the Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way they should go, and in the end they will not depart from it. And so when we see people who have kids that have not followed in the faith, we are abusing Scripture by saying, well, the problem's clearly that they didn't train them up in the way they should go, because the Bible says, train a child in the way they should go, and in the end, they will not depart from it. That's wisdom. It's not a warning. It's not a prophecy. It's not a promise. It is saying a wise person trains their children up, and likely they will continue in the faith. That's what Proverbs are. Our job is to treat it for what it is. Does that make sense to you? So the book of Job is an epic poem. The writer is using an ancient character 
that went through a significant season of struggle yet was known for his steadfast faith to create a poem that wrestles with issues that were contemporary for his day. Let me give a comparison. Very popular musical right now uh, is Hamilton. How many of you have seen Hamilton? All right. Hamilton the musical needs to be distinguished from the actual life and times of Hamilton the man. Hamilton the musical is based loosely around those events, but the composer and all the people involved are more interested, and this is perfectly fine, this is what art's for, they're more interested in exploring a couple of key contemporary issues by exploring the life of Hamilton. Why? Because that's a lot safer. We can take that story, we can laugh at that, we can be satirical, we can actually take some liberties with it, we can add some characters that weren't there, we can imagine certain dialogue. But the whole thing is sung, and so there is no intent whatsoever to reflect a word-for-word, detail-by-detail event. In fact, some of the events are actually wrong. What are the things that Hamilton is seeking to address in our culture today by looking back at a 270-year-old story? Race and immigration. Now, translate yourself back to 700 B.C., You are a philosopher in the nation of Israel. You are seeing Israel struggle with the whole idea of why people suffer. You actually see the struggle right into the time of Jesus. Before Jesus healed the blind men, the disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? God rewards people who are good and punishes people who are evil. God rewards people who have great faith, and people who don't have great faith suffer. That's the retribution principle. By the way, it's the core principle of all major religions. And it had become the core principle of Jewish religion in its day. And so the sage is saying, look, I want to address this through an art form that makes it a safe, interesting way to look at it. And so he tells an ancient story of a man who lived not 270 years before, but 1,000 years before. Let me ask you a question. 1,000 A.D., how many of you know anybody and some of the important details of their life who lived at 1,000 A.D.? Anybody come to mind? Anybody know who the king of Normandy was? Of course you remember Rollo the Viking. The emperor of the Byzantine Empire. Who could forget Basil II? Oh, my mind wanders into all sorts of stories about his life. (laughs) The famous king who united the United Kingdom. Anybody know his name? Who could forget Canute II? Oh, the stories we could share. How about Kao Tzu of the Sing dynasty? Or how about the king of Ghana, Tenkamenin? Anybody? 
I'm leading you down what some of you think is a dangerous place here. And what I mean to do is lead you down to rightly dividing the word of truth. Because God gave us scripture in forms of literature. Jesus himself told parables. They were not true stories, but they spoke truth, didn't they? They spoke eternal truth. And so when we come to the book of Job, the tendency will be for us to think that it belongs in history and therefore get caught up, as we often do, in the veracity of the events, the dialogue that takes place in heaven, and the nature of these devastating things that happened to him in cadence, and to debate the rationality of them. And if we do that, we miss the whole point of the book. Now, ask me if I think the events of Job's life happened exactly as they are recorded in this book. My honest answer is I don't know. I don't need to. It's not the point of the book. Is truth communicated? Yes. But what we're going to learn is that the author is imposing on the comforters of Job a very specific worldview that God rewards the good and punishes the evil. The story is given to us so that we are carried along and forced to consider as we watch this story unfold, move dramatically towards a confrontation with our naivety about suffering, to wrestle with what, believe me, will be truth. Does that make sense to you? I hope it does. And it may open up a whole bunch of questions about what we mean by biblical inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, and that would be good for you. I am not putting anything out to you today that is extreme or different than what the church has actually taught for centuries. It's just that most of us take a very superstitious look at the idea of inspiration of Scripture. I believe that the Bible is without error. What I mean by that is I believe every single word every jot, every tittle, as we say, God meant to be there. And it communicates truth to us. But I also know that God wrote through men, he wrote through various forms of literature, and that allows him to communicate that truth in different ways. And so what we're really studying, you ready? It's Job the musical. The only difference is this musical was not just inspiring, like Hamilton. This musical is God-breathed. And we're going to learn incredible truth in it. Let me just focus us on the big question of this book, and that is the question, why do people suffer? And here is essentially what the writer of the book of Job is inviting us into. Whereas religion says God rewards good people and punishes evil people, which, by the way, is why, in the end, no religion satisfies when we face tragedy. Reward and punishment is what man-made religion is. And to the degree that we treat Christianity that way, that's merely man-made religion. The story of Job is an invitation to quite literally lose our religion and to discover a profound relationship with God, a God who is glorious and who is faithful. 
and who is enough for us, in which we find true peace and eternal wisdom.